are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Well, this evening, as we take up our journey through the Old Testament, we come to the writings of the prophet Obadiah. And can I just be honest, when I discovered that it had fallen to my lot to deal with Obadiah, I was slightly distressed. Most of the Old Testament, they have ample material where you can find a place to run and hide. But can I be honest to you, Obadiah has not much room to hide in it. And, uh, and I was quite concerned and, and I read it and I was really concerned after I had refreshed my mind of what Obadiah had to say. And I read it again and he didn't change anything. It was still the same. And I know tonight some of you are thinking, boy, this is gonna be a short message. And uh, you're excited about it, you're thrilled. Well, just hang on because I'm gonna try to share with you what the Lord has placed upon my heart. As we look at the book of Obadiah, I wanna say a couple of things to remind ourselves of some basic truths before we begin. First of all, let's remind ourselves of the origin of this book. That's very important. It's such a small book, it's such a little book, it has seemingly such an obscure message Why is this book even here? Well, here is its origin. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 1.21, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I think it helps us a whole lot when we stop and remember this is the word of God. This is given to us by God It comes from heaven above, sent to mankind below. So obviously, it is a book of great importance. Not only do we need to remind ourselves about the origin of this book, let's remind ourselves about the objective of this book. Paul not only told Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, but he went on to say that it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Can I say to you tonight, I believe from the book of Obadiah, we can discover doctrine, we can discover reproof, we can discover correction, and we most certainly can find instruction in righteousness. God has not given us a book that is pointless, that that has no impact for us. This is a message tonight from which you and I can draw truth that will be a help to us in our daily life. And then we must remind ourselves about the opportunity concerning this book. Tonight, we have the wonderful privilege to hold in our hand this book of the Word of God, to open it up and to read it and to study it. So tonight, let's ask ourselves individually, Lord, would you speak to my heart? Would you help me see something in this book? Would you help me to unlock some of the truths that you have for me in this book so that when I leave this place, I may leave differently than I came. And when I go out to live, I might live with a different outlook, with a different aspect on life than I had when I came in because I have profited from the book of Obadiah. So let's direct our attention now to this prophetic declaration 
and see what the Lord will say to us. I want you to consider three things with me this evening very briefly. First of all, let's consider the man. The Bible opens uh, this little short book by simply saying the vision of Obadiah. As we begin, we want to consider something about the man that is used to pen this book. Could I say to you, he is an unknown man. The name Obadiah means servant of the Lord. And by the way, in Bible times, evidently Obadiah was a very common name, a very familiar name. Maybe a name like John or Bill or uh, some other common name that we hear every day. In fact, if you read through the Bible, you'll discover there are 13 different Obadiahs that are found on the pages of God's Word. I mean, it's a very common name. But you know, it's very interesting about this book. This man by the name of Obadiah, we have no information about his ancestry. We have no information about where he lived. We know nothing about any other aspects of his life or his ministry. He cannot be definitively linked to any other character found on the pages of scripture. He is just kind of this obscure, unknown man who appears out of nowhere, writes 21 verses, and then disappears back into obscurity. He's an unknown man. Could I say to you tonight, when I think of Obadiah, I must confess that to me, it appears that he has given us an unimpressive work. Now think about this. This is a sum total of Obadiah's life and ministry. 21 verses. I mean, that's it. Not even, you can't even say like how many chapters. It's not plural, it's just one. 21 verses. In fact, I discovered that there are 670 words. In fact, there are 2,823 letters in the book of Obadiah. If you want to add punctuation in, you could say there are 2,909 characters. Hey, when there's not much there, you look for everything you can find, all right? Now, some of you, that's all you're gonna get tonight. You're gonna be sitting there counting words and writing down numbers at the end of every line and you're gonna add them up and try to remember what I said so you know if I'm right or not. And uh, at least that'll keep you occupied in reading the word of God, so I guess that is profitable somehow. But really, these 21 verses, the message of Obadiah, could I say, not only is it just 21 verses, 670 words, but the vast majority of what he writes is negative. I mean, he really doesn't even give us a lot of positive information. So we have an unknown man who writes for us an unimpressive work. And really this unimpressive work is based on an uninspiring message. Here's the subject of Obadiah, the doom of Edom. Man, I didn't hear any amens. I didn't hear any praise the Lord. I didn't see anybody wave a hanky or shout. I mean, this is Obadiah's life work. I mean, 21 verses, just a very negative message on the doom of Edom. When I look at that, I'm reminded of some great truth. Can I say for you and I, it seems to be such an insignificant thing but I wanna remind you that little is much when God is in it. And the truth of it is, 2,500 plus years later, his work goes on. 
And tonight in a place where Obadiah never even knew would exist among a bunch of people that Obadiah never even dreamed would be on planet earth, his work continues on because God was in it and he did what God said do. Could I say for you and I tonight, most of us will be unknown to the multitudes. Most of us, they will be unimpressed by what they see us do. And by the way, many of them are uninspired by the message that we seek to give. But could I say to you tonight, do not be discouraged, do not be disheartened, do not give up, do not quit, for little is much when God is in it. And though you are unknown to men, you are not unknown to God. And though your work seems unimpressive to others, it's a big deal to God because it is the work that he has commissioned you to do, whether it's a Sunday school class, a bus route, whatever it may be, do it for God and trust that God will make something great of that little that he has commissioned to you and I. Well, we have something about the man. And then I wanna say something very quickly about the manuscript. Let's consider the manuscript itself, the subject of this uninspiring work by this unknown man. Now the subject I mentioned before is the doom of Edom. So we have to answer the question, who is Edom? Well, the Bible is always the best source for information and when we turn to the book of Genesis, chapter number 36 and verse number one, we read these words. Now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom? Therefore, just as Jacob, uh, his descendants, his name was changed and the descendants of Jacob became known, uh, Jacob became known as Israel, his descendants became known as the Israelites or the Jewish people. So Esau's name was changed to Edom and the descendants of Esau became known as the Edomites. In fact, as you read through this book, you will find that both the name Edom and the name Esau is used in referring uh, to this man and his descendants. So, in fact, this is really a book about the doom of the descendants of Esau. Now, let's notice two things about this, this book. If we were going to outline it, we would do it like this. In verses 1 through 16, we see that Edom's fate is marked. God tells Obadiah by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I want you to write down, I want you to mark down, I want you to set in ink the doom that Edom is going to experience. This is what is going to happen to them. Notice there's the pronouncement of it in verses one and two. He said, we have heard a rumor from the Lord and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen, thou art greatly despised. Can I say God has the capability uh, to turn the hearts of people either in favor of you or against you if he so desires. And because of what Edom had done, God chose to turn the hearts of people against the Edomites. So God tells what is going to happen. And then notice he gives the particulars of it in verses three through nine. He tells us how it's going to happen. I could not find any better way to describe it than to give you what John Phillips describes it in his book. He says it's this way in verses three through nine. You read it, you will discover that their territory is going to be subdued. 
their treasures are going to be stolen, their treaties are going to be subverted, and their troops are going to be slaughtered. That's a pretty comprehensive description of what is going to happen to the people of Edom. Now, not only does he give us the pronouncement, not only does he give us the particulars, but in verses 10 through 14, he's going to tell us or speak to us, write to us about the properness of it. He's going to tell us why it happens. God is going to justify his reason for bringing this judgment upon the Edomites. He gives three reasons. First of all, in verse number 11, he says, this judgment is coming upon you because you made partnership with Judah's enemies. Look at verse number 11. In the day that thou stoodest in the other side, the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. He said, when the enemies came against my people, when the foes marched into Jerusalem, when they begin to sack and they begin to plunder and they begin to commit murder, you joined in with them against my people. And by the way, I was not happy about that and I saw that and I remember that. And one reason your judgment is coming is because you joined partnership with the enemies of the people of God. Could I just say, be careful about who you join up with. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's the New Testament admonition. Can I say we have to be very cautious because I don't know about you, but I get in enough trouble by myself without getting God upset at me and God angry at me. And so God says, because you formed a partnership with the enemies of the people of God, your judgment is going to come. By the way, not only did they just form a partnership, but notice according to verse number 12, they got pleasure at Judah's expulsion. Look at verse number 12. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. In other words, God said, not only did you just link up and form a partnership with these enemies, but when you saw what they did to my people, you rejoiced, you clapped your hands, you said, hoorah, look at what's happening to them. Look how they're suffering. I'm thrilled about this. Can I say, be careful about what you rejoice about in the life of someone else. We ought to weep when other people weep and rejoice when they rejoice. But too often, sometimes we find ourselves because of our own personal prejudices or our animosities or our grievances over past things, we find ourselves rejoicing when someone else weeps. Can I say God is not happy with that? God is not pleased with that. And God marks that down as a strike against the Edomites. Not only is this judgment proper because of their partnership with Judah's enemies, not only is it right and proper because of their pleasure at Judah's expulsion, but it is right and proper because they actually participated in Judah's enslavement. Verses number 13 and 14, look at verse number 14. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape, neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. In other words, it seems that when the enemy came into Jerusalem, 
Obviously, Jews that were living there sought a way of escape. They sought to flee. They sought to hide. And as one would run down an alleyway to escape the approaching enemy, the Edomites would come to the end of the alley and stand and block their way of escape. In fact, the Edomites would even grab hold of them and take them and bring them back to the enemy and turn them over to the hands of their enemies. God said, I, I saw what happened. I was watching and I'm gonna hold you accountable. Could I just say this? Genesis chapter 12 and verse number three is still in the Bible. It's still a part of God's word. Just in case you forgot what Genesis 12 and verse number three says, let me read it to you. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. Can I say the Jews are still God's chosen people? God has not forgotten about them. God has not forsaken them. God has not abandoned them. God has not replaced them with the church. The Jews are still God's chosen people. And when you raise your hand against the Jewish people, you raise your hand against God Almighty. And when you fight against his people, God himself will fight against you. Now let's remind ourselves not only of the pronouncement of this fate, the particulars, the properness of it, but I want you to notice something interesting about the period of it in verses 15 and 16. We find an interesting phrase. It seems like, and, and many writers who write about this, many Bible scholars would try to tell you that this is already a thing that is past. But I notice in verse number 15, it says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. You know, when you read that phrase, the day of the Lord, uh, that's dealing with the time frame after the rapture of the church all the way through the close of the millennial kingdom. That's the day of the Lord. So to me, this judgment, this complete wiping out of the Edomites, this utter destruction has not fully been completed as of yet. And I believe according to the book of Revelation during the tribulation period at the close of that time of Jacob's trouble, uh, the enemies of God's people will gather around. They will begin to try to move in on Jerusalem and destroy the Jewish people. And I believe that the Edomites and their descendants will be a part of that crowd. But all oh, about the time it looks like Jerusalem is going under. About the time it looks like the last Jew will be wiped off planet Earth. The greatest Jew who has ever lived will split the eastern sky. He'll plant his feet upon the Mount of Olives. He'll unsheathe his sword and he will put an end to the enemies of the people of God and usher in his glorious kingdom. It's really quite an interesting thing how God marks out what's gonna happen to the enemies of the people of God. But not only is Edom fate, Edom's fate marked, but in this book we see Edom's failure is manifested. In verses 17 through 21, and for sake of time, I'll not go through it in detail, but I wanna point out three phrases that are very interesting in this book. In verse number six, we have the phrase, the things of Esau. You might wanna mark that phrase. In verse number 18, we have the phrase, the house of Esau. And in verse number 19, we have the phrase, the mount of Esau. 
And I think these three phrases and what they're connected with reveal to us the complete failure of Edom's desire to destroy Israel and how what they wanted to accomplish was actually turned upon their heads and everything they tried turned out to be a complete failure. Notice the things of Esau. He said in verse number six, how are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? I could say this, the things of Esau reminds us that his practices are discovered. He thought he was doing stuff and getting away with it. He failed to remember that God was watching. That's a good warning for all of us, is it not? That's a good piece of instruction in righteousness. So the things of Esau, his practices are discovered. But then I notice in verse number 18, he says, the house of Esau will be for stubble and they shall kindle in them and devour them. There shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken in. The house of Esau tells us about how his people are devoured. You see, you can't go against God and not expect to encounter severe consequences. For our God is a consuming fire. And God will judge sin and God will judge unrighteousness. And though the judgments of God may move exceedingly slow, when the wheels of judgment finally arrive, they grind exceedingly fine. Not only his people are devoured, his practices are discovered. But we find the phrase, the Mount of Esau, in verse number 19, they of the south shall possess the Mount of Esau. In other words, his place is dispossessed. He thought he was going to take the possession of the people of God from them. But God said, I'm going to take your possession and I'm going to give it to the people of God. What you thought you were going to do is actually going to turn around to be the opposite when I'm finished. You see, this book is a very clear warning and caution against anti-Semitism. Genesis 12.3 is an unconditional promise. And though Israel has been set aside, they have not been forsaken. I want to remind you of the phrase that God gives us in Zechariah chapter number 2 and verse number 8. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. Now notice this, he's talking about the Jewish people. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. When a person raises their hands against the Jewish people, it's like poking God in the eye. And can I say to you, I'm a nice guy. I'm kind of gentle. I'm kind of easygoing. But you poke me in the eye and I'm going to respond. And it's probably not going to be a pat on the back. It's probably not going to be a God bless you. My old man is going to rise up, is going to take over. And I'm probably going to unleash some pain and agony on you if I can. And then I'll get right later on, but at least for the time, I'm going to respond. And can I say to you, when a person raises their hand, when a nation raises their hand, turns against Israel, it's like poking God in the eye and you can rest assured that God will respond. 
So it's a warning against anti-Semitism. Now there's the man, there's the manuscript. But now what is the message? What's the word for us who have gathered here tonight? And this brings me to the R word for this evening. When I first read the book, I thought, I know what the R word is. The R word is revenge. It sounds like a good word, doesn't it? Well, maybe it sounds a little harsh, so I thought, I gotta find a nicer word to use instead of revenge. And so I read verse number 15. The Bible says, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. I thought retribution. That's a nice way to say it, isn't it? But you know, that's not the R word for tonight. You want to know what the R word is? The R word is rejoice. You say, I didn't see that there. No, I didn't see it there either to start with. But I found as I studied this book that there are three great truths over which we can rejoice. I mean, there are three things that are found in this book, three truths that are found in this book that will make you want to jump out of your seat, click your heels together, lift your hands, and shout praise the Lord. Let me give them to you very quickly. First of all, we can rejoice for there is a sovereign penman who sees. You know, this book is a direct message concerning Edom's anti-Semitism. But I want to tell you that God's been keeping record all the time of all that's going on. Let me give it to you very quickly. Do you know that Esau fought against Jacob? Edom fought against Israel in the womb? Genesis chapter number 25, verses 21 through 23. Rebecca is with child. She's struggling and Jacob says, what's going on? And God said, there are two nations in your womb that are struggling one against another. And in the womb, God made a record. Edom is against Israel. Can I say in the wilderness, Edom fought against Israel. Moses leads God's children out of the, uh, the uh, Egyptian bondage. They're crossing through the wilderness. You get to Numbers chapter number 20, verses 14 through 21. And they say, we need to pass through your land, Edom. Edom says, no way. Moses said, if we drink water, we'll pay for it. We're not going to touch anything. We just need to pass through. Edom says, no way. And if you come, I'm going to lift my hand. I'm going to fight against you. I'm going to show you. God says, okay, I'm taking notes. I'm going to write that down. Edom's fighting against Israel. You know, in the place of worship, the Edomites fought against Israel. Remember the story of David when he's fleeing from Saul and he goes to where the temple is, uh, the tabernacle is at, at Nob. And he goes to the priest and he, his men are hungry, they're famished. And David says, do you have anything? And the priest says, well, we just have the showbread that's been taken off the table. And, and David says, well, the men are clean, the men are holy, they can, they can partake of that. And they take it, he gets Goliath's sword and he leaves. And then Saul shows up, says, what happened? He said, well, David came and, and we didn't know. We thought everything was okay and we gave him some food and his men left and, and uh, Saul said to his men, he said, you kill all these priests. They said, whoa, we ain't doing that. There is no way we're lifting our hand against the men of God. And Saul looked around and there was a man there by the name of Doeg the Edomite and he said I'll do it 
And he unsheathed his sword and he killed 85 men of the sacred order of the Levitical priesthood. Doeg the Edomite. And God said, I'm making notes. And Edom is fighting against Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, the days of Saul, the days of David, on up through the days of Jehoshaphat, all the way up through the days, uh, of course, uh, later on as other kings came to the throne, time after time, you read in Kings and Chronicles about how the Edomites fought against them. Uh, Second Chronicles 28, 17 says, for again, the Edomites had come and smitten Judah and carried away captives. And every time they did it, God was making a record. God was writing it down. Edom is fighting against Israel. And ultimately in the hour of their woe, here according to Obadiah chapter 11, uh, or verses 11 through 14, when the Babylonians came in to take Judah captive to carry them off into captivity, the Edomites joined ranks with them and fought against Israel. And God wrote it down. Can I say to you tonight, God is keeping a record. Others may attack you, they may falsely accuse you, they may try to hurt you, they may help the enemy, but you rest assured you don't have to keep a record because God's writing it down. God is keeping a record and God is gonna set things straight one day. You just keep on doing what you're supposed to do. You keep on living for God. You keep on having a good spirit. You keep on being right, doing right, treating people right. You let God take care of all that because there is a sovereign penman who is making a perfect record of all that transpires. Man, I'm glad tonight I don't have to write it down. I don't have to remember what people did to me. I've got a secretary who's taking care of it all. And not one thing ever slips and gets forgotten. Not one, ever, one thing ever passes by. Not one hateful word, not one false accusation, not one thing but that the sovereign penman makes a record and will bring it all up at the right time to be accounted for. Oh, you know, I'm glad there's a sovereign penman. Very quickly, I'm glad tonight that there is a sympathizing priest. What do I mean? Well, we know who our great high priest is, don't we? The Lord Jesus Christ. Well, do you remember at his birth what happened? Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, the wise men came from the east seeking, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And uh, Herod the king said, well, we're looking for this man. Where is he born? They said in Bethlehem. Herod said, go worship him. When you come back, tell me about it. I want to worship him. Obviously, we know the end of the story. We know he didn't want to worship the king. We know that the wise men were warned of God to go home a different way. Joseph and uh, of course, the Christ child and Mary fled into Egypt and Herod went into Bethlehem and slaughtered every child who was two years of age and younger. By the way, this man by the name of Herod was from a place called Idumea, which is Greek for Edom. By the way, should we go further? At the death, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter number 23, we read some very interesting words. In verse number eight, and when Herod saw Jesus, now this is a different Herod, but he's still of the same family. When Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad for he was desirous to see him of a long season because he had heard many things of him, hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Verse number 11, when Herod with his men of war set him at naught 
and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. The same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together for before they were at enmity between themselves. Can I say this Herod again was an Idumean. In other words, he was an Edomite. You say, but preacher, you don't know how it hurts when people attack me and when people falsely accuse me, when they rail against me. Oh, I may not understand, but there is one in heaven who understands. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what it's like to be unjustly accused and falsely accused and mocked and ridiculed because he suffered at the hands of the Edomites. But can I say, not only is there a sovereign penman, not only is there a sympathizing priest, but I want to say that there is a sure promise. You read the end of the book and God sets things right. I, I, I like the, how the book opens. The opening line of the book says, thus saith the Lord God. Now skip over to the last line of the book of Obadiah. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Isn't that a pretty good message? Thus saith the Lord God, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. You know what our problem is? Our problem is we live in between. We live in all the mess that happens in between. But I want to tell you, I've read the end of the book. And I know how it all turns out. And there is a sure promise that the sovereign penman who is making a record and the sympathizing priest who knows how we feel one day will set things right and everything is going to be set in order and justice will be done. I read this little poem the other day and it reminded me of this. It says, I passed a sandlot yesterday. Some kids were playing ball. I strolled along the third baseline within the fielder's call. Say, what's the score? I asked the chap. He yelled to beat the stuffing. There's no one out. The base is full. They're 42 to nothing. You're getting beat, aren't you, lad? And then in no time flat, he answered, no, sir, not as yet we're not. Our side ain't been to bat. <laughs> Can I say it looks like the stuffing's getting beaten out of us sometimes. Looks like we're on the losing side. But I want to tell you, our cleanup hitter hadn't come to bat yet. And one day the sky is going to open and Jesus Christ himself is going to descend. And everything's going to be set in order. Every wrong is going to be made right. Every burden is going to be lifted. Every heartache is going to be washed away. And he will rule and reign from Jerusalem with a rod of iron. And God will make everything right in the end. Our job is just to be faithful until he comes and do what is right. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.